Dr. Devarian Baldwin and Dr. Rasul Mawit joined toward inclusive excellence for our first in-dialogue discussion with two prominent scholars on timely topics. We've conducted past podcast interviews with Dr. Mawit and Dr. Baldwin on their research. While we had other ideas in mind for our in-dialogue session, media announcements came out about AP's decision to strip its African-American studies curriculum about one hour before we talked. So our discussion shifted towards this topic, political encroachment into the academy, and how librarians and faculty need to form more alliances to support academic freedom. Dr. Mowat and Dr. Baldwin share amazing historical data points spanning nearly 60 years on why Black studies exists and its importance within American history. Now to our in-dialogue session with Dr. Devarian Baldwin and Dr. Rasul Mowat. Damarian and Rasul, thank you so much for joining us today to have our first, what we are calling with Toward Inclusive Excellence. It's part of our new series called In Dialogue, where we're bringing scholars together that have really resonated with our listener community and with the higher education community that uh, participates and engages with us through the blog, you know, to just have conversation about your research together where we see those intersections but also timely topics that are impacting the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility landscape. So many thanks to the both of you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Same, same. I really appreciate it. Look forward to the, the dialogue and conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're recording this at the beginning of Black History Month 2023. And what a time. You know, as we were saying before we started the recording, you know, we continue to wrestle with some real difficulties and challenges on the social justice and civil rights front. And today we hear the news from various news outlets that the AP African-American Studies curriculum has been significantly modified um, as the result of criticism from Florida's Governor um, DeSantis. So I'm really interested in hearing from the both of you, and and we'll start with you, Rasul. How are you contextualizing the times and seeing the intersections of this with your work? Um, I think first, in response to the question, can I sort of deal with first contextualizing the circumstances and how it may relate to the work? And so... Um, and, and this may resonate with all of us, but I just want to sort of throw something out there. One, in the sense that I think, uh, at least for me, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on what Black studies was as a founding field and discipline, like what was the circumstances that it was born out of, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, in many cases, it's probably lost, you know, on people. Um so, you know, it's born out of the struggles uh, specifically around Black liberation and Black struggle in the 60s, you know. And so um, it was meant to be an alternative, you know, and, um, you know, critique um, to the sort of status quo of what is understood to be history and culture, specifically in the United States. And while, you know, we are, you know, definitely far away from 1968, not too far, because some of us here are closer in age to 1968. But I do think um, uh, we lost that political history. And so yes. when we know that political history, it's not surprising for these particular actions to take place you know, because um, Black studies in its origin was radical doesn't mean it has been radical. Uh, many of us have taken classes that had nothing to do with that political history whatsoever. It was about spirituals. You know, it was about uh, family gatherings. But no, you know, when we look at that history and some of those original courses and so forth, um, it was quite political. And so this may mean a sort of recapturing 
of black studies, both at the collegiate level, you know, post-secondary as well as, you know, um, you know, before we get into universities and and recognizing that um, universities or, you know, public schools and private schools were never intended to be the main spaces for the instruction of it. Um, you know, we have a history of free schools um, that were, you know, uh, a part of our legacy. And when I mean free schools for our listeners, these were political politically independent schools that were not a part of any um, systems or structures mm-hmm. with the intent to create individuals that could su- survive both emotionally, uh, psychologically, but also culturally, um, you know, inside the United States. So that's just a context. And then just briefly in terms of my own work, um, it sort of helps to shake up a notion of what has happened in cities in the 60s and what's still happening in the present day. Um, So to not get us into a a sense that um, things are too different um, just because um, we're able to do certain things that maybe some people weren't able to do in 1968 doesn't mean that um, there is some radical difference in terms of the quality of life. Uh, There are still people who are living with rats in their homes due to infestation. There's still people who are living with horrible water conditions. Um, and these were central issues for many of the people who were, you know, tackling city-based issues. But I don't want to take up too much time in terms of that opening, but that's both a context as well as um, ways in which um, this current sort of environment impacts my work. Yeah, thank you for that. Go right ahead, Tavarian. Well, I'm going to be brief, just not take up too much time. But, like, I don't think it's a mistake that this campaign against African-American studies or Black studies in high schools and the curriculum is happening at the, on, the, on the eve of Black History Month coming online today. Yeah. This is not by yeah. accident. And so, you know, I'm a scholar of, of cities, and particularly Chicago. That's where uh, uh, Carter G. Woodson founded Black History uh, uh, Week. In the basement, right. in the waste basement of the all black Wabash YMCA. Um, and then, you know, and so it's important to say that and to offer that context because it was about creating um, independent black spaces in the face of white supremacist denial and erasure. And so when we enter, like I'm a child of the 80s, 70s, and 80s. And so when, you know, you start seeing the prevalence of figures like Megan Thee Stallion, Jay Z, Beyonce, Oprah, mm-hmm. what have you, Obama. You know, it was a huge cover, like, you know, uh, when Obama became president. Is there a need for black studies anymore? Because of the singular right. president, they thought there was no need for black studies. We, we're everywhere. Why do we need to have a separate black, you know, black history month or black studies? You know, I don't want to conflate the two, right. but a studies of black yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Studies of black people. But, you know, w- this is all happening with DeSantis at the backdrop of, like, Tyree Nichols. Right. At the backdrop of, Russell yes. Rasul pointed out, Flint, Michigan. At the, you know... At, at the backdrop of immigration campaigns that we don't talk about the degree to which anti-immigration campaigns adversely affect black immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. So just a couple of things. This is at the, at the, at the backdrop of massive evictions, um, you know, in moments of affluence that are adversely affecting black and brown people. So this idea that the overrepresentation of black people in popular culture means we don't need black studies, African American studies, is a misnomer. And our oppositional uh, partners, they know this. This is the reason why they're attacking Black Studies because they see the power in it. They understand the power in it. My good colleague at Yale, um, a scholar of queer studies who was singly attacked by DeSantis's team, Roderick Ferguson, yeah. just published a piece called yeah, Queer yeah. Fear of a, of, a, of a Black Studies Planet. And he made the great point that he's like, you know, there's a reason why the, the, these white supremacist forces, they, they fear Black Studies to point out also what Rasul said, that if we look at the origins of Black studies coming out of a Black liberation struggle, um, knowledge and the lens of a Black studies experience catalyzed social movement actors in queer studies, in, in Chicano studies, in Indigenous studies, in women's studies, understanding the intimate relationship between this country and the African and the Black experience has uh, provoked people to look at their own conditions in new ways. So there's a reason why yes. we want to shut down black studies because it allows people to see the world from a different lens. And, and this, my last point, this, this, this grab over, over African studies in Florida is a, it's not just about us. It's a power grab. It's a power grab for the control of education. 
I'm on the yes. National Council of the American Association of University Professors, and we're putting together a brief right now to combat um, this specific grab, this, this you know, Stop Woke Act in Florida. I'm also working mm -hmm. with a couple of the um, uh, faculty members down in Florida right now through my Smart Cities Lab um, who actually have filed individual lawsuits against the Stop Woke Act. And so if you look at it from the legal sphere, from the political sphere, from the economic sphere, it's about control over the authority of education, how we're going to educate our minds of our young people, how we're going to push forward a vision of democracy, whether we will be central or we'll be marginalized, that if we tell our stories and put the stories of Black people at the center, it requires and forces a different understanding of American democracy in the future. And that's what's at stake here. It's not about a class. It's not about a curriculum. It's about the future of American democracy in this case. So that's, that's my take on this. Yeah, I absolutely agree with the both of you. And I really like the way that the two of you have really woven in, you know, the history of kind of what our understanding around what gave to the rise of Black studies and what used to be Negro History Week and now Black History Month. But this catalyzation of the dog whistling and the ways in which that has manifested itself in the educational sphere and how we're seeing it, not just in K-12 education, but this almost full frontal attack in terms of academic freedom in higher education, right? And so when I think about your research, Rasul, in the context of land, space, geographies of race, and I think about your um, research, Devarian, around the ways in which the academy is oftentimes complicit in land grabs, right? Mm -hmm. and, and thinking of all of this and how some of these topics have now been removed from this pilot curriculum it's just, it's, it's remarkable to me. And the swiftness of it is equally remarkable. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this, the work that we're doing and the, the work we're talking about is, is, tra train, is training freedom fighters for the future. And, and that is what this uh, attack is attempting to shut down. You know, that while some of us are very critical of the academy, rightfully so, um, it's to our detriment to turn away from it because our, our opposition, right. our enemies, they understand the power of knowledge. And they want control over the academy. Um, and so and so we we turn away from it at our peril. Absolutely. I hear you. And, and I mean, man, unfortunately, you opened us up with, you know, a topic point that we can go on and on and on with. But I mean, absolutely. But, but, yes. I mean, it's, it's it's a huge point to recognize, again, this political history in which. You know, black studies, as well as, you know, Negro History Week. But Black History Month was created, even though, you know, it has a veneer in our sort of present day of just being social, just being maybe apolitical in any particular context. Um, and so people, we've taken it for granted um, that sort of political history that has never gone away. It's just that we, re we have never picked it up. But it does not to say that it's not recognized for the danger it sort of presents itself to be. Again, these things were born out of struggle and not out of just intellectual exercise or just a desire right. to bring people together. You know, um, black students' numbers on campus were extremely low. Um, they're still low, but not they're still the, low. Exactly. And so it's still an issue. But of course, the numbers were even lower at that particular time. But the the idea of a black studies department wasn't just to address the numbers it was to create you know and and present an intellectual space that would tackle things like psychology and sociology and history and anthropology but from a perspective that wasn't present in the dominant sort of departments associated with any of those fields and disciplines it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that Black sociology is about just simply trying to find some black people to do a questionnaire or survey. Um, black sociology is about raising the issue or questions of um, why are black people associated with crime? You know, wh where does this sort of come from? Right. You know, and so you have people then who went forward and explored it. But we would both we would all be hard pressed to find within Africana studies departments, black studies departments and African-American studies departments. And I'm, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to criticize my colleagues, Yeah. but you know, I'm from an African-American studies minor. I was a student activist that tried to push forward to get um, the creation of a minor. So I feel very close to it. 
but you'll be hard pressed to find courses that are around policing, you know, mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. these departments mm-hmm. in the present day. You'll find you'll you'll be hard pressed to find political science based courses in black studies departments, you know, and so maybe this sort of attack would help to reinvigorate a sort of political focus um, that has been lost as opposed to sort of seeing it as a way in which it's an attack on our ability to celebrate ourselves. I'm not saying that there's not a time and place to celebrate ourselves, but the point of Black Studies and Black History Month isn't really about a celebration of ourselves. It is sort of a recognition that we still continue to be here uh, despite, you know, the circumstances that um, have always been in front of us. Mm-hmm. And I would just add real quickly that the, 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 one of the greatest compliments of the power of African-American studies um, by our enemies is, is, there, is its co-optation, is, its, is, is taking right. African-American studies like DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, taking it, emptying it of its political power that Rasul just pointed out, and filling it with a set of values that reflects those who are at the administrative top that neutralizes political power. So, for example, if you look at the history of diversity or the history of African-American studies, um, its roots are, are about an intellectual space. But, you know, bringing in my work on universities and urban development at the origins right. of black studies, um, those sisters and brothers we're not just calling for, you know, today we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. It's about, you know, okay, curriculum change. It's about diversifying faculty. And they trace it back to the Black studies tradition. But if we go back to that tradition, what do we find? We have students and faculty fighting for curriculum change, for faculty change, but also like at Malcolm X College on the west side of Chicago, creating a prison annex for incarcerated residents. Um, you know, firing off-duty Chicago police and hiring an all-Black-owned security team, unarmed security team, to provide security, not just on campus, but in the surrounding Westside community. Uh, the city university system, black and, la- black and Puerto Rican students saying, okay, yes, we have, and students don't notice, we have free tuition because the, the city system in New York was free in the 60s and 70s. But the, the, the uh, secondary system of New York City has not prepared our students. They prepared them so woefully that we need open admissions so that the universities can make up for the poor education that our people get in the secondary schools. This also, mm-hmm. even elite school like Wesleyan University, when black students came online, one of the first things they did was they built affordable housing on the campus in Middletown for low-income black residents. It doesn't exist anymore. But the point here is that black studies from its inception understood that we're talking about struggles over power that are intellectual, that are political, that are economic, and that are spatial. It's about reimagining a different relationship between ourselves and the world. And that part of Black studies has been siphoned off to just simply be um, a, an attempt to just simply diversify classes and curriculum. And you right. can say the same right. thing about DEI. Um, and so that's important, I think, for us to, to, in, you know, to uh, introduce or to reintegrate that context to what Black studies originally was at its inception at San Francisco State, at the city university system. Um, um, in Durham, North Carolina, students frustrated with Duke attempt to build their own independent school, right? Uh, the Center for the Black World at, in Atlanta, um, they were frustrated mm-hmm. with the limitations of black of black colleges. So, right. so this is the actual history of black studies, of black study, and what what colleagues call black study and black struggle. Um, these are the origins, and this, and this is and this is why our enemies are attacking it. They they know the history better than we do. Collectively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would, you know, and black studies is probably one of three intellectual traditions that have had this political origin that has situated itself in the academic space, but it's not about the academic space, you know? And so right. in the United That's States, right. yes, we have black studies at, you know, San Francisco state, even though before that it was always these independent courses at a range of places, community centers, right. rec centers, um, you know, classrooms, you know, and various sort of institutions. But then before that, you had cultural studies and at the, at, you know, at the University of Birmingham and in the United Kingdom that was right. all around, you know, this critique of the ways in which, um, especially in, you know, England at the time with Thatcher and so on, you know, there was this oppression on both the white working class, but also the, the immigrant 
black populations from the Caribbean and Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were trying to sort of look at the ways in which, um, you know, the elites were trying to use culture to re-educate people to prefer, you know, elite culture as opposed to these alternative cultures. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, Birmingham got rid of cultural studies, right? <laughs> you know, and those scholars end up creating the open university, you know, where it was a free education program, pretty much like on a CCTV sort of format Mm -hmm. available to any population of people. And then before that you have critical theory, not critical race theory, critical theory. Right. Critical theory. That's right. In Germany, you know, and of course we know during the time period for them, they were under pressure due to the rise of the Nazi party. And so they eventually had to leave. But these are the sort of three sort of academic based traditions that were exceptionally sort of threatening and required people to sort of find ways both on campus as well as off campus to not only organize themselves intellectually, but do something with their sort of intellectual development. So I want to just connect Black studies to that sort of lineage. Yes. um, Mm -hmm. So that. You know, because I think what we're talking about is not something that everybody is familiar with, because either people have taken courses that weren't about this political history or they've just taken courses that were about um, celebrating some particular heroine or hero um, or just looking at some cultural artifact or looking at a series of films and so on and not really having, you know, this understanding of, you know, it's it's outgrowth from Black liberation. You know, again, this was not about simply just celebrating ourselves, seeing ourselves. It was firmly about establishing a new line of thought. And that is exceptionally threatening, you know. Um, And so we have to understand that I'm not saying that this is okay. I'm just saying that this is completely expected, you know, and we just have to now adjust um, you know, off of, you know, that reality. And talking about going full yeah, circle, I agree. a lot of, a lot of the, mm-hmm. sco- the scholars in exile from the Frankfurt School ended up at right. historically black colleges and universities. So talk about, yes. going, talk about going full circle. So this is, a, these, these, these struggles, these, these campaigns, these responses to power are con- connected directly in powerful mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that people don't know that we do not know each other. So we, we are simply, <laughs> we are simply you, riffing. We all know each other yeah. now. <laughs> you know, we're simply riffing off of each other, you know, from totally. clearly a shared space of, um, you know, being brought up, you know, under these traditions. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, one in particular case, um, you have Herbert, you know, you know, you know, Marcuse, who ends up being, you know, one of the lead mentors for, you know, Angela Davis, Angela Davis. Who, who comes out. Right. I mean, so, you know, he goes to a historical black college and eventually, you know, lands over, you know, in California and provides, you know, political and intellectual mentorship to Angela Davis. So I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's not surprising, you know, and, um, and it's also not surprising that those individuals from those institutions found um, historically black colleges and also other spaces around Black folks as one of the better places to be at when they came here to the United States um, because right. of the possibility right. of thinking different, you know, um, and, and yeah. trying to tackle the material conditions in which people live. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I would be remiss to not add in the library and the librarianship aspect oh, yes, this, yes, for right? sure, for sure. And so... What is compelling to me, you know, and and the way in which you all have laid out this history is really beautiful, you know, as as a pillar or as a partner to a lot of this transformational public history activism work were in our libraries. Right. That's right. And we now see a full counterattack on my colleagues in public Mm -hmm. and academic libraries. Right. Administrators resigning in protest because of the desire of county boards or other types of political encroachment into collection decisions, you know, all of these things to me run in concert together. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Throughout my history as an academic and before being academic, I have always found librarians and archivists to be some of the most radical and progressive people because they keep the records. They, they see the, they have the receipts, they have the receipts. So they (laughs) see it on a daily basis. 
And so the power of the archive is that those who are currently in power, they 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 rest on the ability to make their opinion or view of the world seem natural and inevitable. But the power of the archive is to show that there's always been another way. To show that 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 you can imagine differently based on what's been imagined in the past and push that forward. And I think there's something about being in that space and yes. seeing alternative visions of the world in our past, things that we could maybe not even be able to imagine in the present, that has generated and inspired a progressive lens amongst librarians and archivists. And so whether it be Michael Flug, rest in peace in Chicago, um, yes. at the Carter G, at the Carter G. Woodson Library, just to bring this all the way back. Yes. Um, who I worked mm -hmm. under, who, I, who mentored me in certain kind of ways, to um, librarians, archivists that I that I know today, where I'm doing this work and calling for a forensic accounting of the uh, economic footprint of universities. The first place I go to is the archivist and librarian because they're like, okay, let's let's do the let's go to the correspondence, let's go to the let's go to the presidential correspondence, let's go to the uh, uh, administrative archives. They know how to run it down. That's a part of their life, and 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 so we cannot sleep on the archivists and librarians. And it's important within Black Studies, one of the first things they did was got employed Black library scientists as yes. an integral part of Black Studies, especially on big state at big state schools. That's been lost That's to us right. in the downsizing of possibility with good reason, because that was an integral, that the, or, the original founders of Black Studies saw library science as an integral part to their project of liberation. And we've Absolutely. lost we've lost that. Yes. And and still to sort of keep it within Chicago, you know, um, you know, museums we need to think about as public right. sort of facing archives, you know. Right. And while yes, there are you know ways in which we can get official sort of standing and official funding to create infrastructure like DuSable Museum, we have to mm -hmm. remember that Margaret Burroughs DuSable Museum right. was just her living room, right? You know, and so right. and so right. when we think about what she created mm -hmm. in her living room, we can recognize that we don't need to be bogged down by thinking that what we're up against is insurmountable, you know? Right. Um, because if she could create a museum in her living room and and all she, I mean, she wanted it to sort of pretty much stay there. I mean, it's great that it grew to the institution that it is today, but even if they remove and get rid of the Saba Museum, it can always go back to being uh, in, in, in someone's living room and still serve the purpose of what it was for. It was it was in her living room so that neighborhood children could walk in and learn about history and culture and the ways in which people who um, were like them you know, were able to do things beyond what, you know, their own imagination was limiting them themselves to think. And it's also mm -hmm. important to point out that, you know, this current moment of discovery and surprise about all these <laughs> slaveholders in our institutions, um, librarians and community archivists, like local community folk that carry, if you go to the city in the hood, you see brothers and sisters with like a whole briefcase full of like tattered pages trying to show you something. The, the, this wasn't a surprise to them that all these founders were slaveholders. They knew this for decades, but they were purposely silenced. And so this point, this current point of discovery that came out, you know, it would have been happening a little bit before George Floyd and, and, and Breonna Taylor. But after that, all this, this institutional acknowledgement, this was this this truth was being held by community archivists and institutional librarians who knew this for decades and nobody wanted to listen. They were purposely silenced. Um, so now mm -hmm. we're running out here trying to rename buildings and uh, uh, create monuments and all these things that that renaming and that 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 different understanding of our institutions was always known by those who held the records. So it's just important to, right. to, 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 you know, amplify those people who don't get a lot of love. Sometimes even by academics, we go into these archives and we go to these community libraries and we look down on these people. And so then there becomes yes. a contention between these two groups that should be actually working together. So then because of that, me, me as a young scholar, I would go in and I would get shade at the Schomburg or the, at, 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 at certain archives because the way people like me treated them. And so we need to, you know, I think we're doing this, but we need to bridge that divide because that's been purposely yes. created for us not to see the value that we hold in each other. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with that. And it is often the case more than not that crisis bears forth these types of important critical conversations, right, around the ways in which alliances that have been frayed need to 
need to not be fractured mm-hmm. going forward. And specifically when we also think about the academy, right? Because as I was listening to the both of you, I was reflecting on an article that I think was in the Chronicle of Higher Education that says, despite you know many institutions having chief diversity officers and elevating DEI as a part of their institutional values, we're not seeing those gains in the professorate. Yep. And we're not seeing percentile gains on the administrative side. You know, we have seen a material percentage increase of uh, black people becoming presidents of different colleges and universities. But when you get into the other administrative ranks, not so much. Right. And mm-hmm. then when you also talk about other types of institutional leaders that run parallel to or are partners in the type of work that you all do, like my profession remains non-diverse, right? That's right? So I'm really interested in hearing, you know, from you all, like, what can we do? Like, what should our next steps be, you know, knowing that there's there's a lot of heavy lifting that has to happen and we have to be incremental about the ways in which we tussle with these different topics and, and these different challenges. But what should we be looking to do now at this moment? Russell, go ahead. Yeah. Um... And I, you know, in terms of what you were first mentioning about um, the state on of sort of college campuses in terms of uh, a lot more administrators, um, but not, you know, as many, you know, sort of librarians and resources associated with libraries as well as people in the professorate. And I think that's important because both of those would be institutional ways in which Black Studies content uh, would be present if if they are associated with that sort of tradition, because of course, just because a person is black does not mean that that's black studies, you know, on the campus. Right. Person has to right. person has to <laughs> be come has to come from the training of the of the because it's a field and discipline, right? You know, so absolutely. So just like any other field and discipline, you know, it's not about just simply having read a couple articles or a couple <laughs> books and then make the citation. You got to come. From that, and so whether that's through another degree program or just from sitting there and taking the time and reading the body of work, you know. So I'm just saying that, um, you know, there's a reason why then we don't see a lot of black professors and a lot of um, librarians yeah. on campus, um, and specifically black-based libraries on campus, is because that would then institutionalize that type of content, you know, in that way. Because of course, a library on a university level is capable of holding a lot more material than maybe a community-based library. Um, having been a person who, you know, worked for city government and was running a community center, I remember distinctly the sort of content that was in the library in a neighborhood. And it was not, you know, um, relevant books, you know, or newspapers across the world. It was the DVD and C, you know VHS section right. for movies. It was coloring books. It was these types of things. But the main library had all that content in its archives. Um, so it could have right. really just had that sort of content that was about the history of that neighborhood as well as the history of any other particular place at that you know community-based library. Mm-hmm. So I just want to sort of you know say that at first, but then. I think the other part is we should not be afraid of seeking alternative forms of being able to do the work that we think is necessary. Because, again, I want to invoke the Margaret Burroughs of having a library in her living room and the people who created the official Black Studies you know, departments uh, were offering courses um, that weren't associated with credit. Um, you know, I mean, it would be amazing to actually teach a group of students uh, this content that that exclusively wanted it, not taking it for a degree and not taking it for credit, which means that some some people may not even care about the content. They're just trying to complete, you know, X number of courses for their program. You know, so I think we should you know, I'm not saying that that's the only sort of action. I'm just saying, oh, sure. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that. We should not be afraid of saying or seeing um, that creating alternative ways in which that type of knowledge can be accessed, um, taught and learned, um, you know, is not an impossibility, but also not something to shy away from. Mm-hmm. And I, I would just say just to, just a second what you're saying here, brother, that um, I definitely believe that we have to work at least on at least on two fronts that we need these independent 
uh, institutions to develop uh, autonomous system of value, systems of value that we then can bring to these institutions of power and not simply be overwhelmed by what they understand as good and right and important. So, for example, what I mean by that is that, you know, we bef before black studies and as it developed, we were bringing a set of values to these institutions to transform them. And in the present day, it would be to our disservice to turn, you know, when I go into communities that live in the shadows of these institutions, they get, they're like, you know, what's happening in institutions is bull. Like, we don't agree what's going on. But we want the cafeteria. We want the laboratories. We want the dorms. Mm -hmm. We want these institutional frameworks. But we want them to serve us. And so I would say that we have to work on at least these two fronts. And, and the key issue for me is organized. So the misnomer is that these institutions are not diverse. They're, these schools are extremely diverse, but where? They're diverse right. in the professoriate. As we talk about, 70% of professors are, are non-tenure track contingent labor. Those areas right. are majority people of color and women. They mm -hmm. are, the, the university is diverse in terms of the food staff, service staff, in terms of the groundskeepers, in terms of security staff. That's where these institutions are diverse. We do a lot of work at these schools, but in the very spaces where we do work is exactly where power has been extracted. Mm, and so the, mm -hmm. only, the only solution is organizing. For years, I was very critical of AUP, still am, even I'm on the National, on the National Council, which is you know, kind of like what's considered to be the, the, uh, the, the union or the, the organizing uh, uh, arm of university professors. Because it, it, in my opinion, and I'll tell my, my colleagues, it become a professional development society. It had not been a hardcore mm. labor organizing unit. And, and my desire, my goal is to push it in that direction because the only way we can win is organizing on the university side. I'm not talking about in the independent black side, but on the Got university it. side is organizing because we're already there. You know, these institutions are the biggest employers, landholders in our cities and towns. We've talked about this before on this podcast, right? In my work, knowing that landscape, if universities are going to become the factories and our communities are going to be their factory towns, then we have to organize collectively to regain control over the resources and power within those institutions and not turn away from them. Grab hold of the classrooms, grab hold of the cafeterias, grab hold of the rec centers. And not just simply be present, but make sure they serve our communities so that we can bolster the DuSable Museums, the Southside Community Arts Centers, the, broad, the, broad, the broadside presses, the, uh, the Institutes of the Black Worlds that we talked about, the, uh, the prison annexes, and education programs um, so we can bolster those things, redistribute wealth back to those institutions. Because right now, we celebrate these institutions for being profitable and valuable. But where does that wealth come from? It comes from them not paying taxes. It comes from them um, offering low wages to black and brown folks. Their very wealth is predicated on extracting power and wealth from our communities. So it's time to redirect that course through organizing. And I really appreciate yeah. the point, and I want to try to, you know, ensure that, you know, people who are listening sort of understand that sort of collective organizing point, because I think a lot of the reactions to these actions that are happening in Florida and Oklahoma and other particular places is that we have faculty who are not um, in mm -hmm. the adjunct position um, you know, I, ten, I tenure. That's right. Exactly. I think you know where I'm going, where, right, where right, we're right. not the vulnerable populations as it relates to this particular issue. We can yep. find ways to negotiate um, an alternative way to instruct the things that we instruct. Um, mm -hmm. We may not want to move, but we can also. Yeah, we're the most silent. <laughs> it's the most vulnerable that act. It's it's, it's yeah. a shame. But yeah. go ahead. I'm yeah. Just, I'm yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> and so, and so, so he already knows where I'm going. You know, and again, we yes. do not know each other. And so, and right. so it's, it's a thing where, you know, we can go to another particular university, right? You know, we can find another place to be able to do the things that we are wanting to do. But the adjuncts cannot. The, you know, the, the, you know, the secretaries, you know, of these departments cannot. The fiscal officers cannot. The, you know, the operations and maintenance staff cannot. And so we have to be cognizant of their vulnerability um, when we're pushing back 
or protesting and challenging this particular issue, this, which is why it has to be a collaborative and collective effort, because we can't just be pushing for our comfort. The, the issue <laughs> is not, I want to teach what I want to teach as right. the counter. Um, right. You know, the counter is what is actually education, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and, and what should people have the right to learn, you know, and have access to. And so, well, and have the right to teach and, as well, and, the, right? and, the, and the right to teach. And so that then, right. um, so that then when we situate in that particular way, then yes, you know, um, the, the person who's working landscaping on a university would want to sort of connect because some of the reasons why these staff work in these spaces is because there's a material benefit for their children um, in relation to the university. You know, their children can get discounted tuition you know, right. and so forth. And so they would want their children to have access to these courses, whether as a major or not. And so we have to make sure that, you know, you know, we are situating what the actual issue is. And the issue isn't that, you know, uh, the mayor and I are going to be fired, you know, from our jobs for teaching right. X courses, right? Like there's, there's a series of things that would have to happen for either one of right. us to have to go, right? And tenure, and tenure is not is not lifetime employment. It just means you have to have cause, but just exactly. keep going. I want to say that. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. And, and, so, and so, you know, and, 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 and so we're both adults. So if, you know, university approaches us, we know how to sort of figure out a way to be able to, you know, respond to our employer and also still be able to, to teach the ways in which we want to teach. But again, the adjuncts can, do not have that. And we have to make sure that we situate their issues and their vulnerability in what we want to do, as well as the other people who are not even in the classroom that are a part of the educational process. That's right. And I would just say, and I've been talking, I've been really leaning on the material side of what higher education is from, you know, from a a land control space, from an employment space, but on the intellectual side, we have to understand also that it's institutions of higher learning that dictate what, how we define who is human, how we define who's a citizen, how we define who's a criminal, how we define what's a good neighbor, how do we find democracy? And so the institution, th- those in power understand that. And they don't want people like us shaping that conversation. They want people that align with their values to be at the forefront of determining citizenship, humanity, good people, good neighbor, democracy, to justify their political orientations and ends. And that's why we cannot give up this space. Because we right. need to be here shaping the course of those general, those larger terms. And that's why they're sh- shutting down African-American studies in Florida and Oklahoma and Texas, because they understand that's what's at stake. Mm-hmm. The way we determine these general values comes out of these institutions, not universally, but people turn to the institutions to justify political projects. And if we're not there, right. their viewpoint goes forward. And, and this ties to the question about academic freedom. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, if, with 70% of you academics or university professors being contingent, there's no academic freedom on these campuses. People talk about these campuses being overrun by woke liberal snowflakes, right? Look at the budget, look at the administration, and, and you will get a very different story about who runs these institutions. It's not snowflakes. It's not woke mm-hmm. individuals. It's the allies of our enemy. Right. And they understand that if you do not have tenure, meaning if you can get fired without cause, you cannot teach what you want already. You can't say what you want already. Forget the woke act. You already can't do that. So as they're so this is a little bit of smokescreen in a way, like while they're doing this over here on the other side, they're already putting pieces in place to neutralize the freedom that could happen in the classroom by making most of the teachers on campuses contingent adjunct workers. By mm-hmm. increasing that that uh, the administrative class on campuses, this, they're already doing this stuff in different ways, and, and, and the only way, again, I just keep saying, the only way we can we can do we can respond to this is by organizing, is by making these institutions democratic spaces, is by uh, uh, gaining or introducing public oversight over what happens in these institutions, whether they're public or private, because they both get public money. Through finance, through, through student loans or through direct grants or through uh, federal grants for medical research, they're both publicly funded institutions, public and private. So that's, that has to come 
with some public transparency and oversight. And right now, there is very little. We let these institutions do whatever they want, and then we tell the story that they're run by woke liberals. And that's far from the truth. And it's really about, and, and I want us to, you know, wrap up our conversation, kind of also helping our listeners contextualize the point, all these beautiful points that you all have made around a false narrative that's coming out about what's happening in the academy, mm -hmm. right? So how do we, or how should we as a collective, librarians, archivists, faculty, administrators, how should we all think about the ways in which real true partnership can come forth so as to address, as both of you have, have iterated throughout this conversation, this real anti-democratic mm -hmm. dialogue that is persistent, that is national, in some aspects international. How should we address that? Because as I always say to you all, I'd like to leave our listeners with some hope, <laughs> you know, at the conclusion yes. of our conversations. Uh -huh. uh, go ahead, Rasul. I think you were going to start. Yeah, I mean, I was going to speak on something else, but no worries uh, on, on that part. You know, I, well, I think one, when we're, we've been invoking this history, you know, um, and when we look at this history, we notice consistently um, the meeting has to happen, you know, and when I mean the meeting, um, you know, we have historical moments in which the Pan-African Congress came together. We have the conference on anti-lynching, you know, there's all of these meetings that took place around an issue. And so we need to meet, right. You know, and I'm not saying there has to be a national meeting, but there's at least on our campuses, those of us who are concerned need to have a meeting and we need to have everyone present who has, um, you know, a skin in the concern, skin in the mm -hmm. game, right? And so don't mm -hmm. just limit the call or invite to the the, the professorship, right? It needs to be in, right. in everybody who has that concern. And so once we then meet, then we need to do an assessment of where we are at in terms of the issue. Some of us may not see this as an issue. Some of us may only see this as a thing that is an issue, but you don't have the time to do anything about it. And some of us, you know, sees it as an issue to make as a priority. And so then we can then figure out then, then what are the next steps or actions that need to be taken? Is it, you know, uh, a meeting with the presidents or provosts or chancellors, you know, at, at your you know institution? Because in certain cases, there hasn't been formal policies that have been instituted yet at these universities. There's just been dialogue, discussions, rumor, and so forth, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or is it merely to come up with, you know, starting to come up with the infrastructure to alternative um, structures, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think the meeting is so important, not because, you know, talk is, you know, um, is far more important. It's just that you have to meet. Like, if, if you haven't been talking with people already, there's no way to engage in actual collective effort. And collective effort is not showing up to a protest with your sign, right? You know, Collective effort is the formation of organizations or committees or task force and so on. Yes. That is the history, you know, right. um, that is the history that has happened in rural places as well as in, you yeah, know, urban sure. landscapes mm -hmm. by people who were, you know, formally educated and people who were not formally educated. It did not matter. People, you know, met, you know, they created an organization and then they went about the business of doing the work. That, th that that organization felt needed to be done. Mm -hmm. I would say I would say that the institution of higher education it 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 feeds and breeds on our isolation and segmentation in these institutions. Libraries over here, professors over here, tenure professors. In response to all of this revanchous revenge on our lives, our collective response has been to turn to ourselves and say, "Let's hold on to what we got." But while we've done that, our power has actually been increasingly neutralized. As the, mm. as the university changes all around us, we are becoming insignificant, even with the little spoils that we have. And so the degree to my work has shown that the degree to which the university pervades aspects of our lives that have nothing to do with education, the classroom, yes, but also the, uh, the real estate around the campus, the healthcare institution that serves our cities and our rural areas, the policing apparatuses over entire communities, uh, the, the land control. So. I was proud to be a part of a collective action in New Haven, Connecticut, because Yale is the big player there. They are the boss of that city. And as we started convening, and they have been convening long before I joined, 
but as we started convening together and they began to see um, how Yale had pervaded so many aspects of that town's life from the mm. real estate to the healthcare to the policing, the police, Yale's police force has jurisdiction over the entire city, New Haven, police jurisdiction oh, over the wow. entire city, wow. over a brown and mm. black city, right? So, and they're the educational power and the biggest economic employer in that city. So, but, so then as, as, the, as, as the various people that were being subjected to that power, as they began to turn away from Yale and turn to each other around an organization, Rasul, right? New Haven Rising. And they began to organize and they began to bring together students with some faculty, not a lot, some faculty, local residents from New Haven, uh, uh, progressive council person, what they call alders, people like me from the outside to help offer counsel. They were able to push Yale because as in all cities, your public schools are predicated on property taxes. The value... And the Yale don't pay property taxes, and they're the biggest landholder in the city. So we were able to show a direct linkage between the dire conditions of largely black and brown public schools and the wealth that's held on a tax-exempt campus like Yale University and push them through organizing, public shame, collective work to begin to contribute more money to the city of New Haven for tax relief. It's not the answer, but it's a pathway. It's a beacon to show that if we turn from institutions and turn to each other and, and develop collective values that repurpose and reimagine what that institution is in our lives, we can make another university and we can make another dem democracy. Gentlemen, thank you so much. What an outstanding conversation and dialogue. I appreciate your time on behalf of Toward Inclusive Excellence. You have given me a lot of hope as an African-American studies major. Um, you know, you, you've put some wind under my sail around some additional activities that I can, you know, take up as well. So thank you so much for your time. This was a wonderful in dialogue. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you, Asu, as well. Again, we don't know each other, right? That's the that's the call for the day. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Leslie, thank you thank for hosting you. us. Thank you for hosting us. Appreciate it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. This was really delightful. Thank you. Thank you for joining Toward Inclusive Excellence for our dialogue with Devarian Baldwin and Rasul Mowat. We encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases and to follow us on Choice Review's Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn accounts. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well. <laughs>